Hello, and welcome to a remote episode of Saturday the 14th. You can tell this is remote because that was definitely not in unison. We are not in the same room. We're not actually, I can't even see you right now, Maddie. We're just hearing each other's voices. It's very weird. It's really weird. I don't like it. Um, no. I'll see you tomorrow, though, so that'll be nice. That's true. Not in person, still. Don't not we? in we're person. Being, no, we're being very good girls, and not. I think this is the longest I've gone without seeing Maggie in real life in like years. Years, I would say, because it's been like three or four years. Yeah, it's been about a month. Yeah, yeah. We recorded our last episode together in person. Fourteenth. Yeah. On the fourteenth, and what day is say the third? Yep. The, yeah. Uh, oh not God. quite a month. So, how are you holding up over there? Um, pretty well overall. I feel like I'm a lot more scared about this situation than I am by most of the movies that we watch. Yeah, uh, it definitely <laughs> is more intense, I would say, and affecting us in a more <laughs> realistic way. But it's funny because like I definitely had a lot of nightmares, for example. But they're all work related and I don't know if I care a lot more about work because that's all I have in my life right now. Like mm. I don't have dodgeball. We haven't been able to record this podcast because we've had too much else going on. I can't go to the gym. Like I have my apartment, I have my cats and I have work. So I've had like, I had a nightmare the other night where I w- in my dream, I woke up to 50 like angry unread messages oh from coworkers who work um, opposite hours. And I will often wake up to like two or three messages from people, but never 50. And there was one, like, it was just a whole thing. I had a dream last night about buying a whole bunch of eggs. <laughs> So, you know, I think it's affecting all of our dreams in different ways. Finally got eggs after weeks of not having eggs. Finally got toilet paper. Thank God, because I was down to two rolls. Um, It's been rough, man. I've been on a cleaning binge, and so I'm almost out of paper towel. And so now I have to go to the store for paper towel this weekend. And I would prefer not to, but we're also, like, out of most of our food. I'm eating, Do you not use an S when you say paper towels? Is it just paper towel? Oh, I don't know. I've always called them, like, all of, I've always said, like, I'm out of paper towels, not I'm out of paper towel. Oh, man, is this, like, a regional thing? No, I don't think it is. <laughs> I, can't, I can't. You just forgot the I S? I can't <laughs> tell if it's something I normally do or not. I've never thought about it. I've never heard you say that before. I think I might have just said it weird that time. <laughs> it's definitely not, like, a New England thing or anything like that. I you also think, said, so. like, I'm out of paper towel. And it was great. <laughs> Listen, oh, man. it's just been me and Tim in our apartment. I'm getting weird. All right? I understand we all are. Oh, my God. Uh, so shall we get weird about uh, The Exorcist? Sure, why not? All right. So this week we are talking about the classic, uh, the truly iconic 1973 William Friedkin film, The Exorcist. Um, Yes, it's so good. It's amazing and it's super important to horror films. So if you have not seen it, um, that's a big old missing step in your uh, horror knowledge. So you should definitely check it out. But it is funny because um, a lot of the people involved in the movie don't consider it a horror movie. I get that, but it is. <laughs> That's the thing is like it. It's about demon possession. It is, and but a little it's girl's not head like spins around. There aren't really like jump scares. It's more unsettling. It's about this was like one of the first big exorcism movies. Like if you, when you're watching it, the first half, like nothing scary happens. You're just trying to figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. And it's really about like a crisis of faith movie in a lot of ways, and about religion. And I think it's like the director um some of the people involved in filming like some of the actors have said like 
this just isn't a horror movie. Like that's not what this is intended to be. I think it is. I think yeah, it classifies. I think people, I think people forget that horror is like a subgenre. It's not like a summary of what a movie is. Like horror is it, it's scary movies, right? So this is a scary movie. So I would say it falls under the horror genre. Um, but I don't think that horror has to be like, it can be about other stuff and also be a horror movie. Yeah. Like it doesn't, like just because it has other themes that are not just, I don't know, be scared. Like, well, I wonder if one of the reasons, and we'll get into this later, but this was one of the first like critically acclaimed horror movies. It's actually like a horror movie. Yes, like yeah. you can say like The Bride of Frankenstein did really well and people loved that, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't receive the same reception that this did and it wasn't as scary like this is. Definitely. Yeah. But so I think that might be one reason why, but I wouldn't, I think you could call this definitely a horror movie. But it also could potentially be classified as other kinds of movies as well. Yeah, I don't know. I also just think like the way that they kind of marketed it when it came out doesn't really align with being like, oh, ho, ho, it's not a horror movie. It's just that people are fainting and having heart attacks in the theater. Ho, ho, but it's not uh, a horror movie. It's like you can't well, have it both ways. I'm sorry. Like you can't. That- to be fair, like the writers and the actors don't choose how a movie is marketed. I know, but if you make a movie, I don't know. Like, I, I just feel like it's it's intentionally scary, right? Like, the girl's head spins around and, like, all the fucked up shit. Ha- like, it's just so much fucked up stuff happens. You can't, like, put all that stuff in there and be like, but it's smart, so it's not a horror movie. I just hate that shit. I hate I it when think, people try to... I don't think it came across as that when I read the articles that people talked about it. They didn't say, like, oh, this isn't a horror movie. It was more of a, uh, those aren't the themes that we're going for here. Like, we're not, like, it wasn't intended to be a horror movie when it was made. Like, because you have really good horror movies. I just think that their intention wasn't to make a horror movie. They just kind of accidentally did. Hmm. I don't know. But anyway. Like that, that It's like filming a movie with a shit ton of, like, car chases in it and then being like, oh, I didn't know I was making an action movie. Well, like, there's plenty of movies where fucked up things... all the car chases? There are plenty of movies where fucked up things happen that aren't considered horror movies. Yeah, but I don't know. I feel like having it, like, the demon possession element is, like... Uh, that's like a pretty well, remember this cut. is the first movie and that, that, and had that is a strong true that is true that. this was a this was the starter on that but i don't know i don't know all right well let's get into the actual details of it and we can talk about this in greater detail later yeah um so this is based off of a book and it was actually written by the same the the screenplay was written by the author william peter blatty who also wrote the book the exorcist and it stars ellen burston max von Sido. Sido? Yeah, I think Sido is right. Okay, Lee J. Cobb, Kitty Wynn, Jack McGowan, Jason Miller, and of course, the iconic Linda Blair. Linda Blair. This movie had so many problems getting made because people didn't think a 12-year-old could actually carry it, and then, like, she does. She does such a good job. She really does. She's amazing. Um, Its budget was uh, $12 million, which is pretty hefty for that it's a good amount of money yeah yeah um and it uh made that work for it it made a hundred nope it made uh 441.3 million dollars at the box office and i read that adjusted that would be over a billion dollars today yeah i think it was the highest r-rated movie until the highest grossing r-rated movie until pretty recently i think within the last 10 years and um, like it was originally wasn't even supposed to be R. Just uh, some MPAA folks were like, "We'll give you this one." I mean, yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine a lot of that stuff getting away under an R rate. Oh, right, because you mean because it was supposed to be X? Yes. Yes, it was supposed to be rated X, and then yeah. they were like, "This movie is important. We'll we'll let it slide." Yeah, 
It's kind of cool. For 1973, it's astonishing that a lot of that stuff. It really is. That they let that go, because, oh my God. Uh, So yeah, let's get into that. So it starts off um, in um, Washington, D.C.? Oh, (laughs) you're right. I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, And we see Lancaster Marin, who's played by Max von Sydow. Um, the unfortunately late Max von Sydow, because he he passed away, I think, in the last month. Oh, wow. Uh, and he must have been old, because he was old when this was filmed. He was only 44 when this was filmed. Oh, man. You know all those threads about how people age differently? Yeah. I think this, this is, is a prime example. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where people did not, people who are 40 do not look like he looks in this movie. No, In 2020. Not. He was younger in this movie than, like, um... I don't know. Brad Pitt is right now. Then who is Brad Pitt? Oh, Brad Pitt. Sorry, uh, your mic. I don't know if you've heard of him. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's doing this remote is so hard. It's so weird. It's very weird. But anyway, um, so we start off in Iraq. Yes, and he so Lancaster Marin is a priest. Um, he has performed an exorcism back in the 1950s, and he's like kind of checked out. It seems. From yeah, he's kind of left. Um, and he's working in an archaeological dig now. And he is looking around, and and there's like a thing that's been opened, and he kind of is like summoned over to check it out, and he finds an amulet. Um, that he thinks represents Pazuzu, a demon of ancient origins, and he like knows all about Pazuzu. Um, and it's implied that it's because of the exorcism. Hey. And hey. we also see like a really creepy looking statue of Pazuzu. Yeah, it's messed up. Yep. And then uh, we see him like going to a market and talking with some people too. But uh, a lot of it, I don't know, a lot of these scenes just were kind of slow and didn't seem to be necessary. Yeah. Then we go to Georgetown, which is near yeah. Washington, D.C. So I wasn't entirely wrong. I just forgot where the movie literally started. Um, no, you and, were very close. Uh, there's an actress named Chris McNeil who is living with her 12 year old daughter, Reagan, who's really adorable and is just like a very normal 12 year old. Yeah, I liked that. I liked how totally normal like their mother daughter relationship is. I liked that they chose an older child for this rather than like a toddler because I think that it adds a lot more when you can like see her as an actual person with opinions and ideas fair. and a personality. I feel like this never would have gotten approved or gone in the theaters with a toddler doing oh, the things that no, Reagan does. Obviously not. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. But like, um, you know, in like the omen, the sort of the whole time you're sort of like, Oh, this kid's fucked up. Like Yeah, and, but I think that you know, the kid being like weird when he's like five in that case works really well because of the fact that you're like, Oh, is he just like a quiet five year old? He looks so innocent and he looks like the pure innocent true also that's about a child who like is the antichrist not like yeah so if he was like 12 he'd just be like real fucked up but at this you're like oh she's so great and then when like stuff starts to happen you're like oh no regan yeah (laughs) i liked you so much don't be like that but chris mcneil is starring in a film all about student activism and she's playing a teacher and it's directed by her friend uh burke dennings who is an odd dude yeah he is. Uh, he's weird, but it's implied there's some sort of romantic relationship between her and Burke as yeah, well. Yeah, Regan like talks about it, and she's like, "Oh, like you like him, and are you gonna get married to him?" And she's like, oh, "I don't know about all that." 
Yeah. It was also nice to see like a really positive single mom with their daughter relationship too, because I feel like you didn't get a lot of that in the seventies necessarily. Yeah. You only really see the only negative aspect of like the divorce is the fact that her dad sucks now and like yeah. call her on her birthday, which it is. A hundred percent. Um, so, uh, yeah. So then we also meet this priest, um, father Damien Karras, uh, who seems to be questioning his faith. Yeah, um, I think we see him, like, watching as the movie is being made. He's clearly, like, kind of drawn to it and is... I don't think he's, like, attracted to the mom or anything like that. I think he's just, like, interested in movies and, like, kind of watching what's going around in his neighborhood. And then he goes home and we see him going to, like, this not super great part of town. And he goes up to, like, this walk-up apartment to visit his mom and his mom is living there alone and not doing super well. But she will not go to like a, a nursing home, which he really wants her to go to because, you know, obviously he can't care for her and she's like going up and down the stairs by herself and that makes him there's, worried. There's also the fact that uh, she's from Greece and so she's uh, speaking in Greek and as well as English, but I think there's a little bit of a uh, worry of xenophobic folks because later in the movie there are people who like talk about getting him deported when they're upset with him. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think um, that also is informing some of her reasoning for not wanting to go because she like is listening to Greek music like her uh, uh, her she says that her his uncle visited so it must have been her brother. Yeah, I was just trying yeah, to remember how family relationships work because you know it's <laughs> my brain's been turned off a lot recently. So we kind of get this overall image of Father Karras of Damon Karras as this guy who like his life kind of sucks like he. It sounds like he should have been, or a lot of his family believes he should have been a psychiatrist, um, and that that would have done better for him financially, but he instead yeah. he went into like, the priesthood, and now he's, like, losing his faith in the church, so he's, like, kind of unsure of what he's supposed to be doing, or, like, did he mess everything up? That's basically his entire arc. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, honestly, if you watch this movie and you don't fully understand the themes, I highly suggest reading the Wikipedia synopsis of the book and not of the movie. Because the book's Wikipedia synopsis like perfectly captures every single theme in this movie. And I don't know why it's so much better when they're identical plots. That but is interesting. Something to keep in mind. Because uh, yeah. I was like, okay, I get it. I don't fully know what this movie is trying to say. And then reading that, I was like, oh, because there's this whole thing about how he's supposed to like come back and rediscover his faith by doing something good at the end but then like you don't get that from the movie really anyway um back to not the end of the movie um yeah so he visits his mom tries to convince her to move to a nursing home she says no and we cut back to uh chris and reagan yeah so reagan has found a ouija board at home and she's been like playing with it she says she's met like a friend called captain howdy and um, she tries to play with it with her mom, but like when she asks, she asks like, "Is my mom beautiful?" or something like that. Yeah, and it just like doesn't do anything. And she's like, "Oh, that's rude, Captain Howdy." And like when her mom first touches like the um, I can't think of what the thing's called, but like the little the placard. Uh, yeah, the plaque, the planchette. So she touches the planchette, and it like flies out of her hands. So she's like, "Okay, this is weird," but like my daughter's obviously just messing around with it. Um, and then a bunch of stuff starts to get weird with Reagan. yeah like one night uh reagan goes to her mom's bed and sleeps in there and her mom's like what are you doing she's like well my bed wouldn't start stop shaking so i thought yeah. maybe i slept in your bed and, and then, then there's like yeah like a scratching in the house that they keep hearing and the mom thinks it's rats 
but the the guy who like the housekeeper guy is like it's not rats we don't have rats upstairs it's something else she's like and well. that's actually a conversation that happened almost in the very beginning of the movie but then it comes back up because she's like no i swear i heard something she goes up in the attic to find these damn rats and there's nothing there spooky scary yeah um and then so so regan's mom has a party uh chris is her mom's name um and it's a weird vibe because there's like a whole bunch of people there like burke is there and he gets trashed and starts like screaming he gets at her butler so that drunk. he's like a nazi even though her butler's like swiss yeah <laughs> so, got like, no idea also um weird. burke is like english or irish or something too and he has like some sort of european english speaking accent and yeah. he's just being obnoxious and an asshole yeah, and, like, everybody else gets trashed. There's, like, an astronaut there. There's, like, another priest who's friends with Father Karas, which is, like, kind of how they ended up getting connected in the first place. And the priest is, like, playing the piano and singing. They're all having, like, a good time, despite the fact that it's a little weird. Um, and then Regan comes down and points at the astronaut. Yeah, and uh, she just points at him and says, like, you're going to die up there. Which is a very intense opening line at a party. <laughs> and then she pees on the floor. And she's, like, Which 12. is a great follow-up line at a party. <laughs> uh yeah and then uh not long after that her beds it might have been even in that same night her bed starts shaking when yeah, she's on and her, it and chris like jumps on it to try to stop it and like it's shaking both of them and like throwing both of them around and the mattress is going like up and down it's not just side to side but it's going crazy yeah um also at some point i think before the party we see that um damien's mom has been hospitalized and yes. she is being held in like a psych ward there um yeah so his mom dies and that's like a whole obviously traumatic thing for him because he feels like it's his fault because if he had if he had gone to school to be a psychiatrist instead of joining the seminary then he would have been able to provide her with a better life and he wouldn't be broke and his uncle outright says that to him which is a very mean thing to say yeah he Um, says something like if you're a psychiatrist you could you have like an apartment on like the facing central park or on the upper west side he mentioned some part of new york that's expensive yeah i think that they're in new york i think his mom lives in new york and he lives in dc oh that makes a lot of sense because it does Um, look a lot like new york when he goes there and it makes sense that he doesn't see her very often right i think that's what the situation is because i didn't make Um, the realization that he definitely mentioned the uncle definitely mentions a spot in new york yeah he says like you would have an apartment looking out on the park or something like that and instead, your mother's here in this whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so he's, like, not doing well. Not um, at all. And neither is Regan. No. Um, things are getting worse. There's, like, weird noises. She's, like, taking stuff. She's swearing a lot. And so her mom starts to talk to doctors, but they, like, they run tests on her. And, like, they do a, um, like, a brain scan, basically. And there's nothing wrong with Yeah, they with think her. she has scarring on, like, her frontal lobe and that that is causing these issues. And they're convinced they can remove it if they can find it. And they do, like, test after test after test. And there's this weird one where... So I guess it's doing like an old school version of like a CAT scan or an MRI where they like poke her and blood starts like shooting out before they can put yeah, the needle in. I read that that's not how it goes at all. And the- <laughs> I have had lots of MRIs. I've never had a CAT scan, I can tell you. But uh, if you have to get like dye or something like that, they like inject it into your blood. You don't, there's not blood shooting everywhere. It's a needle. It goes in your arm. It's like taking blood or like getting like put under for a surgery which i've also been put under for a lot of surgeries more than the average person i feel like um 
And so it's just weird that I was like watching this. I was like, I've never, what is this? Like, this is not how they do this. No, but it's uh, And maybe it was in the 70s. I don't no, know. No, a bunch of doctors when it came out were like, this is irresponsible. It's going to make people not want to get this thing done. Okay, cool. Um, that makes me feel better because I was watching that thinking about that. And then there's so something. It's almost really- like they put in a scene with a lot of spurting blood in it. Like you might do if you were making a horror movie. Maggie, I am not huh. saying that they are right. I am <laughs> telling you what they said and how well, I can understand wrong. why they said what they said said i am not saying that they were right in this situation it is Um, our job as uh film commenters i would say analysts but honestly we're just having fun here yeah no we're Um, just but i feel like it's our job to understand what they think of the movie and then get to yell a lot about how they are wrong about what they made okay that's fine i'll do that last part (laughs) sounds Um, good so basically they talk to her and they're like i we don't know we don't know what's wrong there's really like Nothing seems wrong with her. I don't know. She's mad. They suggest that she talk to a shrink or to a psychiatrist, and she's mad about that, too. And so she goes home after this meeting to go see, like, I guess she was out talking to the doctors, and Regan was back home. And she gets home, and her babysitter's like, oh, I left Regan here with Burke, because Burke came by, and they were hanging out. Um, and I also all we've seen of Burke is him yelling at Chris on set and him being obscenely drunk. Right. Like, don't let that watch your kids. One, uh, why is she supposed to be attracted to him? And two, uh, who would trust that man with children? To be fair, she's 12. True. But when they, when she gets home, she's mad because nobody is there. Like she gets there at the same time as the baby, uh, that the nanny gets there. Um, and the nanny's like, yeah, I mean, I had to go out to get some stuff and he was here. He said he would watch her for a second, but I don't know where he is now. And like, right after that, this other guy comes in. Um, I don't remember who it was in particular comes in and tells her, tells Chris that Burke died because he fell out of the window of upstairs of that house. I think it was the astronaut, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it might've been. Uh, yeah, so they're like, yeah, he fell out of the window and he like hit, there's the, the long steps. Everybody knows like the exorcist steps, um, this long staircase down to the, the street. And they're like, yeah, by the time he got to the bottom of the stairs, he was dead. And so they figure that this is just because he is like drunk all the time and he probably just fell out as an accident. But there's still like a police officer who has to come and investigate. And um, he talks to her and he also talks to Father Karras. Um, and... Well, there's also been vandalisms at the church recently. Like, there is a statue that has, like, boobs and, like, a weird spiky penis, like, put onto it that look kind of, like, spiky and bloody. Yeah. Uh, They only show up very briefly, so I can't give you an in-depth description of what it looks like. No, they're weird, though. They're great. Yeah. uh, And so, I guess he thinks that maybe this all has to do with everything, where, like, Reagan being weird has to do with, like, the church being desecrated and all that jazz. Yeah. And so in the meantime, Regan's doctors straight up tell her mom, like, you should look into getting an exorcism, I guess. (laughs) Okay, this was interesting. So one, they do some of like exploratory brain surgery or something like that, which also was very, very incorrectly portrayed because my mom had brain surgery. And what they do is they will literally screw uh, screw screws into your skull so that way you physically cannot move your head. So there's no way you can like jerk it while you're awake. So I was like, like, yeah. It's completely makes sense. You need to do that. And they did not do that for this weird brain thing they were doing to Reagan. And then they're like, yeah, we think she has some sort of disorder that you only see in like these specific places. 
and that she thinks like she's been inhabited by a demon. We think you should do an exorcism, not because this is a demon, but because if she thinks that she's been exorcised, then she'll get better because it's all in her head. That is their theory. Which I get from like a perspective, but exorcisms like have a history of being really dangerous. Like for people like because there's a lot of intense physicality involved and that seems like a risk that they shouldn't take. And also just like, what? (laughs) Like, why would you like churches? The church doesn't really, as you see in subsequent scenes, they don't just like do them. It's not like you just call somebody up and say like, oh, hey, I need like an exorcism this weekend. They have to like prove that the person is possessed, which is a whole thing. To be fair, if you are just trying to convince a 12 year old that an exorcism is happening, you don't necessarily need it to be an official like Catholic church approved exorcism. The thing is that once the mom hears about this, she starts looking into it and she becomes 100% convinced that that's what's happened to her daughter. So she is fighting for a real exorcism. But when the doctor suggests it. I bet you that they would have been fine with it if it was like a random priest doing it, not church approved or someone dressed up as a priest. Cause the whole thing is just Reagan needs to believe it. That's true. Um, and, and Chris at first is like, well, she's not religious. She's like barely been to church. Like she doesn't, she's not going to believe that, but I guess. Okay. Um, and so she is put in contact with father Karras by Lieutenant. What's his name? Lieutenant Kinderman, uh, who is the police officer who she had talked to. Um, and also, Oh no, it's not the, is it the police officer or is it her friend? Um she asks someone like who is that priest with like the dark hair because yeah, yeah. he was watching at the film set and that person says, "Oh, that's Father Karis." And she like saw him outside of the church as well and I think that she knows that he get like he gives counsel to other priests and like kind of helps them with their issues. Yeah, and so um, I don't remember who it is who tells her who it is, but then she reaches out to him, I think, and then they meet on a bridge and he comes like in exercise clothing and she's like, "I don't want to talk to you." And he's like, "No, wait, I'm the person you're waiting for. I should have told you that I'm not going to be in my priest's outfit." And she's like, "Oops. I thought and- you were just asking for an autograph cuz I'm a famous actress." Which is really funny when the police officer does that. And I definitely fully expect it to be like a trap where he's trying to get like a sample of her handwriting or something. But also, but no. nope, he's just a fan and weird. Honestly, the police officer was the least necessary part of this entire movie. Yeah, but I guess, I mean, they would have to look into it somehow, right? Like they a guy would. died in their house. Yeah, but I don't think that it, it seemed like a whole subplot that just didn't need to be there. I think it was yeah, probably one true. of those things that made a lot of sense in the book and was like a full fleshed out subplot in the book and then just kind of fell flat in the movie. Yeah, I know there were some cutscenes as well, so they, they're oh, there yeah, might be like more the of the spider that. walk. The oh crab my God, walk. The spider walk. Holy shit. So she talks to Father Karras and she's like, okay, all of this insane stuff is going on with my daughter. The people said that she needs an exorcism, whatever. And Father Karras is like, uh, that's kind of a tall order, actually. You can't just like get one. And uh and he also so, doesn't necessarily believe at first that it is demonic possession yeah. from what she's telling him. Because he's like, no, this all honestly all sounds like a mental issues. Like, I can evaluate her as a psychiatrist. Right. But not like, I'm not going to give her an exorcism. And she's like, listen, just like, come over. Like, it's insane. You have to see it. You'll see what's going on. And so he's like, okay, I'll check it out. And, and so he comes over. Yeah, and the first thing that he thinks, the thing that he thinks, um, I mean, like, a lot of crazy stuff happens. Like, she has this really frightening deep voice that doesn't sound like a child. Well, the first time he turns his back, too, 
she says in the voice of like a beggar who talked to him when he was in New York, right? Says like, "Father, spare a coin for a ex altar boy or something like that." Yeah, and um, and then it says something about his mother, just kind of offhand at first. Although he ends up talking, she ends up talking more about his mother later, um. And just, like, little things where he's like, oh, something weird is going on. And so then he starts to think one of the things that, like, is a comp- common, um, I guess, symptom of being possessed is being able to speak languages you've never learned. And so he thinks that she's speaking another language at first, and he records her speaking because it doesn't sound like English. And then eventually he goes back and, like, listens to it and realizes that she's actually speaking backwards. She Well, he plays it for someone, and he's like, do you recognize this language? And he's like, yeah, that's a language, all right. I recognize it. He's like, great, what language is it? And the guy says, it's English. It's just backwards. And he's like, oh, shit. And so then he goes back and he plays the recording uh, backwards, and it's a bunch of voices saying, like, help me, or something like that. Yeah, and, like, he goes, um, the 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 nanny shows him up to her bedroom at one point, like calls him over and like, won't tell the mom, like doesn't want the mom to know what's going on. And they go over to her room and it's like freezing cold now in her room every time they go over. And she shows him that like on her stomach, it looks like someone is scratching help me from the outside or like from the inside out. Yeah. It's like being pushed out towards her skin. It's not like an external scratch. Yeah. And so they're like, okay, this is a problem. Like something, this is, this is a real issue that needs a real exorcism. And so he takes it to the church and they decide to go ahead with it. Not without any pushback, but they do decide to go ahead with it. And they assign him, uh, Father Marin as his, like the person who's actually going to do the exorcism and then Karis will assist. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, because Karis originally says that he wants to do it himself. They're like, no, we want to get someone with experience to do it. How about Marin? And it turns out he is back from his uh, archaeological dig in Iraq. Yes. And so they go up and they, like, they go to meet Regan, and it has gotten much worse. Yeah. It's gotten Uh, real gross. Uh, There's the... The worst scene in the movie, without a doubt, and I remembered half of it, and I forgot the second half of it, which also gets worse, um, is she, uh, Reagan, in this scene, uh, there, uh, content warning real quick for um, sexual violence. It's gross. Skip forward like a minute if you don't want to hear about this. But uh, she proceeds to violently masturbate herself is the uh, phrase that is used in a lot of articles with a metal cross to the point where it is very bloody and then when her mom like tries to get her to stop she tells her mom to lick it and it's horrible the second part i forgot the first part i remembered yeah it's it's hard to forget the first part um i do have a really funny story about the first part uh, that I will tell later that I read from like the filming that I think is just it's really funny it's just showing about how uh, there are certain things that men can't write for women yeah. uh, but I'll tell that I'll tell it now fuck it um, but basically the angle of her hand the director wanted her the angle of her hand to be different and the body double who did it because they obviously did not have Linda Blair film this right. scene because that would be horribly inappropriate to have right. a 12 year old uh, film um, she was like, no, like women, when they do this, need to actually angle their hand differently 
uh, it works differently for women than it does for men. And oh, they had to God. have a whole long conversation about the angle. Oh, and my God. It's just really funny. And uh, they filmed it by using like a bloody sponge. Uh, And so that was actually like located where her belly button was. So it was like a bunch of weird things that like when you know behind the scenes, it's not as disturbing and some of the the funniness that came out of it. But apparently the the discussion was getting so long, they had to like send people off the set and like the director and the body double like went privately to talk about it because. Oh, my God. um, (laughs) What a weird conversation. It was just such a weird awkward horrible conversation that they had to deal with and they're like we don't need every single person to listen to this let's go talk about this privately oh my god so anyway that's my kind of funny that's that's, that's my way of bringing yeah, a, little a little bit of levity. lightheartedness sure. to the uh disgustingness of this scene yeah and so they're my like, opinion, okay. worst scene in the movie yes uh they're like okay it's time to get this demon out of this girl uh, and they try to exercise the demon but it is like stubborn yeah um, it really doesn't want to come out of her no it says like that it is satan basically which is not normal um, that, i think that happens before they go to the church because that was like one of the reasons why father Karras didn't want to take it to the church as an exorcism because he was right. like it's not naming a demon it's naming just the devil and that's very generic and not actually what happens yeah and so like it tells it does the like infamous your mother sucks cocks in hell line to, to father Karras and all of this like intense stuff um, and Karis is getting very emotionally wrapped up in it to the point where he is not remembering to like respond to certain verbal cues that the that uh, Marin is giving him. Yeah, and Marin's like, okay, listen, if you can't do this, just like get out, and I will do this. And Karis goes, and Karis goes downstairs for a moment, and someone like asks if it's done. He's like, no, and he's like, okay, I'm back together. I'm gonna go upstairs and rejoin. He knocks on the door and doesn't hear anything, and he opens it and finds that Marin has died. Yes, of a heart attack. It seems like um, uh, and he can't. Like book, he tries, was, but he can't. In the book, it was really obvious that it was a heart attack. I think in this one, you just see him down on the floor, but you've seen that he's taking pills. I think it was also yeah. supposed to be a heart attack. They just never like say anything about it, right? And so he like tries to revive Marin, but he can't, and so he like freaks out on Regan slash Pazuzu. Um, and you know, the, the spirit, the demon is like making fun of him and he like eventually gets her onto the ground and he's sort of like wrestling her, like kind of trying to choke her. It seems like, um, and the demon leaves her body and Karis is like, get in here then you weak bitch. Well, I think he's still he's in so Reagan's right. body. He's just like, what do you want with a 12 year old? Take me, like take me instead. Yeah. And the demon's like, sounds gucci let's go do it. and so he uh body hops real quick and you see uh marin's or not marin you see uh father karis's eyes change you can tell that it's in him yeah they get green and it looks like he is going to try to kill regan still yeah for a second it looks like he's of, going to he sort of like pulls himself together for a second and like chucks himself out the window which we already know one person died that way, so it seems to think that he will also die that way, which he does. But another priest um, who we've met before, who's like an old friend of uh, Father Karras, he finds him and when all the police are around and everything, and does like the last rites. Yes, so hopefully that gets rid of the demon and he gets to go to heaven. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not Catholic, so I don't really know a lot of the details of how that stuff works. You know, I was raised uh, a tiny bit Catholic and basically stopped uh, practicing in any way when I was like 10. But 
you don't learn that really as a normal. I don't think that's like a normal thing that you learn when you were a Catholic. If you are possessed, like, that's not in Sunday school. They're not like if you're possessed, but also you say you that get like I ever went rest. to Sunday school. <laughs> I did not ever go to Sunday school. I went to midnight mass a couple times because I thought it sounded cool. Uh, it turned out it was really boring. Um, a few days later, uh, Reagan seems like completely back to her normal self, and her and yeah. her mom. Uh, they were originally planning to go to Europe, but now it seems like they're just going to go back to L.A. And Regan really doesn't remember anything about what happened to her. No, but when she meets Father Dyer, um, she like gives him a kiss on the cheek, and it seems like she has a fondness for priests now. That or like a fondness for like because he I mean, he specifically did something good to someone who did something That's good true. to her. So I don't know if it was specifically him or priests in general. Maybe, but um, also she wouldn't really know about. I don't know. I don't know like either. It's a little vague, but she gives him a kiss. So maybe she remembers some stuff. Maybe she doesn't. Um, and then they take off for Los Angeles. And, and that's yeah, basically it. Lieutenant Kinderman like shows back up at the end and like says, hey, to Father Dyer. So it seems like they're going to like try to figure out what happened, sort of. Honestly, that sounds so. Un- uh, as far as I'm considered, like Lieutenant Kinderman just didn't need to be in this movie. Yeah, he didn't really. <laughs> no, he didn't that a ton, to be honest. The scenes no. in Iraq, uh, I get the idea of where it was coming from, but just a couple of these different parts just felt a little bit underdeveloped. And I think yeah. that's actually because of the fact that this was based on a novel. And I think rather than, especially because you have the same screenwriter as you do novel writer, I think he tried to include all the parts of his book rather than trying to make it all make sense as a movie. Because in a book, it can be as long as you want. And you can have like these fully fleshed out plots. In a movie, you need to have a certain amount of time. Right. Um, and I, I kind of can see, like, with the beginning stuff, with the Pazuzu stuff, like, they do find a statue that looks like the amulet, like a little trinket near the home, I think, at one point, because somebody, like, picks one up off of the ground. So there's, like, a yeah, vague find- callback, but it doesn't really explain. So presumably Pazuzu is the demon that's inside of her, right? But That's what it seems to imply, but, like, I just feel not- like... yeah. They didn't dive into that very well. And yeah, like I said, uh, I think that in books, you can have a lot more intertwining plots that all come together. While in a movie, it's hard to do that in the same way, unless it's like a love actually situation where they're all entirely different and tie up at the very end. Yeah, or like Crash is another example of that. But when you have too many things going on, you have to tie them all up in two hours. That's really difficult. That's true. And I mean, it's not like you don't understand the connection. Like, it's not like it's difficult to figure out what the connection between him being in Iraq and being like, like the demon showing up later. Like, obviously, it's sort of, okay, they release the evil there. And then the evil comes to Georgetown for some reason. And, you know, whatever. Maybe it follows him back or whatever. Um, So it's also never showed him coming back. Right. You just hear that he came back a few weeks ago, so... Yeah, you hear that he came back only when they're talking about bringing him in for the exorcism. So, I don't know. Although it's kind of implied at the beginning that he's leaving, right? Because he's, like, saying goodbye and hugging people. Yeah, but we don't know where to. He could be leaving to go to, like, Toronto. (laughs) That's a good point. Um, Yeah, so there's a lot... (laughs) One of the interesting things I think about this movie is... It was based on a book, like we've talked about, and it was written by William Blatty, who also wrote the book, but the book itself was based off of, quote-unquote, real events, which I find very interesting in the way that I I almost have more respect for it because it is 
a movie version of a fictionalization of possibly real events instead of something like the Amityville Horror where they're like, it's real. (laughs) Yeah, totally totally happened. Or The Conjuring was similar. Right. Or you have like, uh, which we talked about, not here yet, but the movie like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which is I think supposed to be more of like a court case style movie about an exorcism. And the argument is whether or not it actually was. Um, But that, again, is like a fictionalized version of a real case. This is like a fictionalized version of a fictionalized version. So it's like two steps removed. Yeah. And I mean, there like Friedkin did kind of try to tie some of that stuff back in a little bit more like the original stuff later. But so basically it's based off of the exorcism of Roland Doe, which is obviously a pseudonym. He's also called Robbie uh, in some versions of the text, I guess. Um, And there was a book written about Roland Doe by the attending priest, a guy named Raymond J. Bishop. Um, And some of the things that are mentioned in it is uh, he was supposed to have been introduced to a Ouija board by like a spiritual aunt who he had, which like kind of started off his problems. Um, There was a shaking bed. Uh, I guess he spoke Latin, which is sort of alluded to in the whole like speaking languages that you don't know thing but i guess some people are suspicious that uh roland doe just was like repeating words in latin that he'd heard like during mass or whatever um the words appearing scratched into his skin was something that happened in that case um but of course you know with most of these things there is a lot of doubt as to whether the original book was actually accurate at all um i mean you can say something similar about like a lot of movies that are written or books that are written about like serial killers well they read a lot about actual serial killers and then write a book in order to um like based on some of those things that we can be more accurate yeah and i think i think that is definitely the saving grace where because like you said it is like a couple steps removed it's not like being like oh this is about the exorcism of roland doe because then you can come at it and be like well this thing's fake that thing's probably not real this thing didn't really happen or like they even go as far they change like the name they change the place they change a lot they change the gender of the person True. I guess it did actually happen around Georgetown, though, because I think that uh, uh, William Peter Blatty lived in Georgetown, which is how he heard about it. Okay, well, I'm wrong about them changing the place, but I'm guessing (laughs) Iraq wasn't involved. Uh, Iraq probably was not involved, no. (laughs) Um, So I guess Blatty, like, didn't really have any information on what was actually going on when he wrote The Exorcist based off of the whole Roland Doe thing. Like, he just read about it in the newspapers and was like, oh, that's cool, so I'll write about that. Um, and then Friedkin, when he started working on the movie, he like got access to the priest's diaries from like the Roland Doe exorcism experience or like whatever the notes were that Raymond J. Bishop had um, and like talked to the kid's aunt who like apparently the, the furniture flying around doesn't happen in the book. And he added it into the movie because the kid's aunt told him that it had happened during the possession. So it's sort of weird and like it didn't. I don't know, like it came kind of back around to being about the original events again, kind of in a weird roundabout way. It In a way, yeah. Cool. So what's also interesting about this is that uh, Freakin, years later, actually went and filmed a real exorcism. And uh, like, in, I guess as real as exorcism, I don't know, depending on what you believe, if you believe that demons do inhabit human bodies, but an actual practice from the Catholic Church of an exorcism. And that apparently changed a lot about how he thought about how he made the movie The Exorcist. And I thought that was really interesting. And one of the things I read was that he 
felt kind of bad because when he was watching this exorcism happen, he felt a lot of like, he felt really bad for the girl this was happening to. I think it was a girl. Um, And he realized it was like a really sympathetic situation where you actually see how like much horrible like pain that she is going through and that's not something he depicted that much in the movie the exorcist and it really wasn't a very accurate depiction of anything at all even like how exorcisms are performed and so, but because this movie did so well which we mentioned earlier it became like the iconic like this is what an exorcism looks like and now every time you see an exorcism in media it looks like this movie yeah i mean it is crazy it basically founded the subgenre of like exorcist exorcism horror and like possession horror and as such it's sort, of like, it's sort of like cemented all of these themes and like ideas of like demonic possession which i think are really really interesting and one of them i think is like specifically the corruption of a child because like this movie could have been about anyone like adults can get possessed hypothetically right like that's that happens in other possession movies but specifically the child aspect of it and i know that there's like other creepy child movies that came out before this one but this one i kind of feel like is sort of a bit of a codifier aren't that many creepy child movies that came out before this one though there There are are some situations but there i think this was one of the first ones and i think it's because of that idea and i think we talked about this in the omen where when a, a seeing evil in a child is so different than seeing it in a person because there are like real evil adults but usually as children like they're pretty innocent beings they're meant to be seen as innocent yeah and also they're so vulnerable like being able to protect your child is like the goal of a parent right like if you're a good parent you want to protect your child from like anything bad that could happen to them like you know anything major bad that could happen to them and so for something like this to come along where it's like they're not just physically at risk like their soul is at stake and they are changing into someone who is like not your child anymore and also there's like nothing you can do about it even in a situation where like chris mcneil in this movie is a wealthy actress like and all the money Prior she had in the world this. couldn't save anything, which is also right. interesting because on the flip side, we see the person who like money would have changed Father Karras's situation yeah. if he'd had it. And then she has the money and is useless. Yeah. And I mean, we see this in a lot of like, child possession movies, like in Rosemary's Baby, which is actually prior to this. Um, her husband is like an actor and they live in like this fancy apartment building in the omen his dad is a diplomat there's nothing any of them can do like it does not matter how rich you are and i think that comes up over and over and over again because that's the scariest thing like it doesn't matter how well you prepare if the devil's gonna take your child like what are you gonna do about it you know a hundred percent i think this actually would have been even more unsettling if it were a younger child but like we said earlier i just don't think this could have been made with a younger child yeah and also i was kind of thinking about it more like thinking about how like the omen came out after this like it almost seems like they started out with like a 12 year old so that you could get the whole story and you could see her change and you like you know her at the beginning and then like later movies kind of took it up a notch and made it a younger child and a younger child you know i think that makes sense yeah yeah but i I mean uh I was just going to say the omen wouldn't exist without this movie. Oh, definitely not. No, but I think that there it's kind of like how with Saw, like it starts off a little bit gruesome and then like later movies turn it up and turn it up and turn it up. Like every There's some great following uh, movie is going to get more extreme. Commentary on that exact thing in Scream 4, which is 
probably my second favorite out of the Scream series. Oh yeah, no, Scream Four was great. I really liked. And it Scream talks 4. about how like it, that specifically talks about how remakes need to step it up because right. modern audiences have become desensitized. Exactly. And once you're used to one thing, then you need to like step up the intensity. Then you did it more, and you need to do it more. And now, even nowadays, you have movies like. Uh, I think it was Human Centipede 2 where there's like a baby whose skull is crushed under a like accelerator pedal of a car. Um, I haven't seen it. I just read the Wikipedia synopsis. But like that is something that you could never have happened years ago. But like we got used to seeing and not even used to seeing because this movie like blew the fuck up um, in terms of how popular this was. But like everyone when they saw this 12 year old going through horrible things. And then years later, they saw a five year old who is the literal antichrist. And now you right. see babies being killed. And it's like amazing that we're just becoming more depraved as time goes on is what yeah. at least like funny games writers want you to think. It was interesting. I was reading, so I, I have a book of essays by Robin Wood, um, and one of the essays is an introduction to the American horror film, which is really, really interesting. Um, and he talks about how like elements that are repressed or oppressed in American culture kind of end up popping up in horror movies as like the villains, basically. Like if like sexuality, like a perversion of sexuality shows up a lot, um, and sort of like any group of people or any like personality aspect that we either repress or oppress kind of ends up coming up as the other in some sort of monstrous form. And he talks about how one major group that is othered in American culture is children. Um, like you don't have any control over your life when you're a child. Um, your individuality is like completely repressed. You're not really allowed to make your own decisions. Um, any expression of sexuality is like treated as shocking. And this is like the extreme version of all that. Right. So like in a demonic possession film, your child is completely out of control. Like we see these kids turning into something that is like so far outside of acceptable society and a lot of times we see it happen like right when a change is coming for kids so like birth for rosemary's baby like you have this whole time to plan like being pregnant and being excited about being pregnant and then like your baby comes out and oh my god it's horrible or like damien in the omen like oh he's going from a toddler to a kid you're like oh what personality is he going to develop like what's he going to be like oh shit he's the antichrist or like in this movie with puberty for reagan where they go from being like your little kid to sort of like turning into an adult. And it's that same thing. We're like, Oh shit. She's like turning into an adult. And as it turns out, the adult she's turning into is like a demon, a demon. <laughs> oh shit. It's a demon. Um, and so you kind of get that sense where like, it's the scariest version of what raising a child could possibly be like. And the mother or both parents in Damien's case are like afraid of losing their sweet child or the child that they want. And like, instead they're turning into this other person. And we also see in the exorcist, we see like, the most fucked up version of sexuality <laughs> which is yeah. worse because it's a kid like that level of like any it's like, like a kid it's violent and it's like blasphemous against the church it's like i don't know what else you could add to this to make it worse honestly. yeah no it's like it's the worst it's, it's basically the like most the trinity of like everything that you don't want to see happen right um and I also think it's interesting that uh, we see this happening in a, um, like a single parent household for this one. Because um, I was also reading another book um, by Kendall R. Phillips is called Projected Fears, Horror Films in American Culture. Um, and he talks about like sort of what he calls the decline of the American family during the late 60s and early 70s, um, which was totally changing the way that like 
the average American family looked and specifically like the rise in divorce. So I do think it's interesting that sort of like the opener in this whole genre of like parents trying to deal with their like terrifying possessed children is a divorced mother. Yeah, I really, it was also nice seeing that they had a really positive relationship. And I think what's nice is at the very beginning of this movie showed that was not the reason for this because you could say like, oh, well, it's a single mom and her daughter is possessed. Like clearly the mom was doing something wrong. And I feel like by showing how wonderful of a relationship they had early on and how like positive everything was, uh, they're able to fight that stereotype. Yeah. And I think it's also interesting because it's like then it, it doesn't, yeah, it's it's not her fault. It's never framed as being her fault that this is happening to her child. But you do get the sense that, like, she's alone in this. Like, you there do get are that, other yeah. people who are trying to help her. But, like, she tries to call her daughter's dad on her daughter's birthday to be like, what the fuck, call your daughter, it's her birthday. And, like, he just can't be reached. So all of this other stuff is going down. And she, like, does not have the support system that, like, Damien's parents have. Like, they can lean on each other. And she doesn't have that at all. And yeah. when she does try to have like some sort of relationship with somebody else, she gets he gets like thrown out of a window. <laughs> and then I uh, thought also about when we talked about cat people. Mm-hmm. That's what the movie was called, right? Cat people. Yeah, cat people. Cool. Um, we talked about that and how when like someone does something bad, they need to be punished for it. And part of me when watching this was thinking about, I mean, is divorce something bad? And is Reagan being possessed like her punishment? Is that one of the reasons why they decided to make it a single mom? Uh, and I don't think that's the case, but it did. I did start thinking about that while watching the movie because of that conversation we had about cat people. Yeah, I mean, I I, I sort of thought about that as well. And I, I really don't think that it is. It doesn't seem... I think it just makes it harder and you can feel like the sadness and like her helplessness because she doesn't have anyone else fighting for her. And also, I mean, as a single woman in the 70s, it was probably a lot harder to get doctors to listen to her yelling about how like she needs help from her daughter. Like, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And Phillips also talks a bit about how like during the 60s and 70s kind of going in hand in hand with like the rise in divorce rates people were also waiting longer to have kids um and like kind of hesitant to get married or have kids it was like kind of the first generation where it wasn't just okay you get married and then you have the kids and you do this and you do that kind of coming out of like that 50s and early 60s here's what's expected of you so you do it type of thing 100 percent and he talks about two reasons why this might have happened so first of all being having a kid ends your days of being able to do whatever you want. Like you, you don't really know what's going to happen with the kid. You don't know how hard it's going to be until you actually have the kid. Um, and you're sort of like bound by that. And if you've had this really like free and easy lifestyle up until that point, that might be something that some people are unwilling to give up. And we sort of see a reflection of that. Um, like when Chris tries to date after being divorced, or even when she just tries to like socialize, uh, and have like a cool party, her daughter comes downstairs and threatens a party guest and then pees on her floor and then later on throws the guy that she's kind of dating out of a window to his death. So like, again, it's sort of like the ultimate case of, yeah, parenthood is great and she loves her daughter, but also like she, her life will never go back to normal. Like it's never going to be like it was before she had kids, you know? And say that you, we probably don't need to explain all the reasons why young people aren't having kids or weren't having kids then to our generation because oh, they're I the mean, same reasons <laughs> you're 29 i'm 28 uh, we're not having kids anytime soon not too soon no not uh, not like in the uh, exact immediate future and no. like if we were in the 50s right now we'd be we like old and kids. weird we'd already we'd probably we'd already, already have, have like kids. two or three kids yeah yeah and it would be rough like 
it'd be a lot for us though also because it was the 50s we'd be stay-at-home moms true cooking and cleaning for the family yeah um and another thing that he mentions is uh and i think that this one applies a little bit less to our generation um is that that generation in the late 60s and early 70s as children and teens totally changed the world around them right so we went from being like the nuclear family and this and that to like sex drugs and rock and roll and free love and all of that stuff and so he suggests that the possessed children represent um in his words an underlying concern that the next generation might wreak even more cultural destruction i.e like what's more intense than ending the world honestly so there's already like this uncertainty and like times are changing so like it could get worse I feel like that is still representative today because in every generation people think like, oh, the next generation is so different and going to like cause such trouble. Like I read something that said that when kids started using paper instead of chalkboards, like teachers were upset because they're like, oh, well, they need to understand chalk. We can't rely on this paper bullshit. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> or like when... Uh, I don't know, people started, like, a telephone was created. People were like, oh, well, this is going to ruin letter writing. They're never going to be, like, as intelligent. And, like, it's going to cause problems. They're not going to be the same productive society because they don't write letters. They make phone calls instead. And, like, that happens in every single generation. They're like, oh, this new technology or this, like, new cultural shift is so bad and so horrible. That's true. the new generation knows nothing and are, like, bratty and horrible. And it's just like, no, they have things that we didn't have because they grew up later and we made things for them right and that shouldn't be seen as a bad thing it should be seen like oh cool they can do their homework without checking out a bunch of encyclopedias because they have really good internet sources yeah to bring it to a modern day uh, equivalent but Not if you think about like Asian. all the changes that we're going through in the world right now like think about like what's happened how much history we've lived through in the past like 20 years like i was thinking about this in the elevator yesterday actually about how like millennials have lived through 9-11 they've lived through the iraq war they've lived through gay marriage being legalized they lived through the first black president they've lived through now the first like major jewish democratic party forerunner uh and so, like, there's a lot of firsts that we've experienced. And I think that every generation experiences a lot of history. We just don't talk about every generation's history. Because I can't imagine that our experiences growing up have been significantly different than any other generation. Just we only learn about certain beats in history. That's true. Yeah. That was my, those are my elevator thoughts, which are, like, equivalent, I guess, to, like, shower thoughts. But uh, <laughs> it's quarantine, so my showers have been a lot shorter because I'm trying not to shampoo my hair as much. I feel you. I'm there with you. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I mean, it is, it, it's kind of, it, it stays relevant and it stays, you know, and it's understandable why this stuff was particularly sort of top of mind in the sixties and seventies and kind of along with what we mentioned in, in our episode about the omen about like, this is horror coming to America. And like, that was a time period where, you know, there had been wars overseas and stuff, but now we, people were actually like seeing what was happening in these wars, like on television and things like that. And it was just like a different world stuff everything felt like it was more of a threat and it could like come for you and like be in your household and so it's interesting how that is reflected through this like weird messed up view of the like american family i also thought it was really interesting that it came from iraq specifically and it's like oh like xenophobia against iraq's existed for a long time that's true i hmm i kind of just imagine it as like well if something old related to christianity is going to be found it's going to be found in probably not iraq well the middle east 
I guess it depends on what part of Christianity, because if it's like Old Testament where uh, it's shared between Judaism and Islam as well as Christianity, then that would make a lot of sense. I mean, the whole Bible is in the Middle East. Yeah, no, I get that. But what I mean, (laughs) I know a lot of the Bible takes place over there, but I don't know. It's not like like, if you're going to find something that is a legitimate, like the devil, like from the early, early days of Christianity, like it's not going to be in Georgetown, you know? Yeah, but that wasn't. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I was just thinking like there are other parts of the world that also worship. But at the same time, I guess it would have been from like, I didn't seem like it was supposed to be from like his days. It seemed like it was like a relic of worship of a demon. And so it was relic of worship of a demon from it didn't i don't know that little metal thing didn't look like it was from like i don't know zero ad or 21 ad or something like that (laughs) i mean i definitely do think that there is sort of like a vague gesture towards the middle east in a lot of these movies where it's like i don't know something spooky's going on over there it's yeah it kind of feels more like it's like oh there's this far off place and there's like secret hidden evil things there yeah and to be fair yeah I am very ignorant about a lot of religion, which is something I'm trying to learn more about. And I feel like in our last episode when we did Mother, I learned so much about the Bible. So thank you for that. But the point being that I am still learning and growing in this space. And I understand there are things I don't get. But this does feel, unless I'm missing something big, this kind of feels like a, oh, there's a really far away place we don't understand. Let's make the evil thing come from there. I mean, that's also kind of how horror used to view Europe, which we've talked about as well. And like but in we, the 70s, we understood Europe better. Right. Like we knew that it wasn't like the sort of vague place that Frankenstein lives. So then it's like moving on to where the next weird you know, tension is growing and the place that we don't understand. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I I think you're probably right that, you know, as much as you can sort of say, well, yes, that's where a lot of archaeological sites regarding early Christianity are, then I'm sure that it's also partially being like, ooh, spooky, Iraq, so spooky. So I do think it was a combination of the two. And I did underestimate slash uh, not realize how important archaeological sites would probably be there. Yeah, well... Um, speaking of things that might be cursed, uh, this movie might be cursed. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of horror movies from around this time are supposed to be like, quote unquote, cursed. I think it's just that it had a big budget and um, a lot of special effects and safety measures weren't really like great thing then. Well, yet. like the omen was also supposed to have said to be cursed. That's true. Because we talked a lot about that in our omen episode and how they went through very similar things. And so... I just think that, like, because it was a horror movie filmed in those conditions where, like, if it's a romantic, like, comedy-type movie filmed in the 70s and, like, a bunch of bad things happen, they're not going to be like, oh, this romantic comedy is cursed. They're going to say, if a bunch of bad things happen on a horror movie set regarding demonic possession. If somebody got injured during a stunt for a rom-com, that would be an intense rom-com. Yeah, I mean, also think about, like, what action, like, big action movies involving stunts where people would actually get hurt were filmed in the 70s. Yeah. So the things that happened to this. Uh, the set burned down. <laughs> okay, that's pretty bad. Because a bird flew into the circuit box. Um, and apparently the only room that wasn't affected by this was Regan's room. Hey. Which is frightening. Um, two people, Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings, and uh, Vasiliki Maliaris, who played Mrs. Karras, both died shortly after production ended. And they are two of the characters who die in the film 
So that's okay, but a lot. Most characters die in this movie. Yeah, a lot of them do. Also, um, Burke Dennings died like a year later in like an influenza epidemic. So it wasn't like he died. He didn't like fall out a window. Like he died of a disease that was like, yeah. rampant in the area he lived in. Um, and uh, Vasiliki Malioris was like pretty old. Yeah, she's so I feel like pretty that's old in the not movie. a huge shocker. Like, obviously, it's very sad, and yes, in combination, it's a little bit creepy, but, like, people die. Like, it it happens. It's not necessarily indicative of a curse, but combined with all the other stuff, I get it. I get the the direction it might take. Um, I also found a source that said that Linda Blair and Max von Sydow lost members of their family during the shoot, but I couldn't figure out who those family members were. So it could have been, like, a great aunt or something like that, and we just don't know. And also, apparently, uh, Jason Miller's son was in a motorcycle accident shortly after, um, which I also couldn't find a lot of information about. His son, Jason Patrick, uh, who is the only son he had alive at the time, um, because he has a younger son as well, uh, would have been like seven when it happened. So I guess he would have been a passenger. um, But I couldn't find anything about it on like Jason Patrick's uh, like Wikipedia page or anything like that. So I don't really know the details of that. I don't know how severe it was, um, but another spooky thing to have happened um and then ellen burston and linda blair were both injured during some of the possession scenes uh because they were yanked around by their harnesses yeah and uh ellen burston's injury wasn't just like a casual one she actually suffered like a permanent spinal injury um when she was pulled away from the bed she landed and like hit a part of it and actually i don't know if it's in the shot that they actually used in the movie but she like screams out in pain i think it is i think that did end up being in the movie because i'm pretty sure she was mad at william friedkin for using the actual take understandable but also i understand why he did it yeah i do too um this is i think the creepiest thing that happened one of the radiological tech the guy who is like talking to regan when they're doing the weird blood spurt thing on her Mm mm-hmm that is a man named Paul Bateson. He was a real radiological technician, and William Friedkin liked the way that he talked when he, I guess he saw him perform the surgery on somebody else when they were like doing research or something, so he put him in the movie. He was arrested a few years later for murdering a guy. And I guess what? he's been tenuously linked to a couple of other possible murders, but he definitely murdered a variety reporter named Addison Verrill, whose body was found in his apartment after they met at a bar. To be fair, well, one that's completely fucked. I was going to say, to be fair, imagine going to a technician and saying, hey, we want to use you because you actually do this. We're going to have you do it wrong and it's going to involve a lot of blood. Do you think it awoken some, like it, it like awakened I was going to say, what is the type of person that would say, yes, I will watch this or I will show this procedure being done incorrectly if there's a lot of blood involved? Oh... Maybe. I don't know that he was like, I, didn't I don't the know that he was just... like a serial killer. Although I guess there is like, to be fair, we saw him for like a minute in a show yeah. or in a movie when he was playing a character. Yeah. It seems like he was just like a fucked up guy who like did some fucked up shit later. Not necessarily. That is creepy he was and horrible. Like, I love the blood type of killer. Just like a, no, guy. I just meant like I was, I was kind of making a joke, which I guess is like murder isn't really IRL murder isn't really something to joke about, even though we make lots of jokes about like fictional murder in this podcast. Oh I don't gosh. know. Oh, I'm stretching out my legs. I'm sitting Ooh. on the floor and I'm incredibly uncomfortable. I don't have any tables in my bedroom. I do, but they're not convenient for this. 
Yeah, uh, filming remotely, uh, not the easiest thing. I'm sitting at my desk (laughs) and uh, leaning forward from my desk to reach the microphone is not the most comfortable, easy thing either. Yeah. Um, So there were not, when this movie came out, none of these people were famous, famous, right? Like Ellen Burstyn has since become pretty famous. Um, The studio kind of didn't expect for it to do really, really well. It did so well people loved this movie (laughs) i found an article a new york times article from 1974 talking about scalpers making 50 dollars per pair of tickets uh in in 1974 the average movie ticket price was a dollar 76 so like there was an insane markup to go see this movie there were like hour-long lines that people were standing in um and actually i read that apparently they didn't intentionally like the the studio didn't really release it into any like primarily black neighborhoods because they didn't think that any like black audiences would really care about it um but black audiences liked it so much that it made the studios realize that they didn't necessarily have to cater to black audiences in order to get their like attention in like in theaters which is actually probably a kind of pretty bad thing because it's like a double-edged sword yeah, it realizes like, that stories duh. are universal where everyone can connect to the same idea of characters. Everyone can, like, it doesn't matter, like, True. the color of the and person. But at the same had, time. Yeah, I think if they had taken it and been like, great, so, like, white, white audiences can see black movies and black audiences can see white movies. And, like, we just have to make sure that the stories, like, relate to people. But instead they were like, great, we don't have to pay any attention to black stories or storytellers anymore. We're just going to make a bunch of white people movies. And I guess black audiences will just go see them. And I mean, I think studios are still learning that because like when uh, Disney released Black Panther in China, they had no expectation that it would do well at all. And it blew up. It performed so well in China and no one thought that it would. And that's the thing is like a good movie will perform well. Right. And just like it doesn't matter. Let's include everyone. Make movies for everyone featuring everyone yeah and it's kind of a bummer that like that's the lesson that was learned from this from this like super cool movie that did really well also had that like weird depressing negative like effect as well completely a little little glum sidebar i guess Um, and there are all of these like crazy claims about what was happening in the theaters they were like oh people are vomiting in the theaters like they said that a woman had a miscarriage in the theater because of how i have read that yeah which Which is probably not true probably not um i mean it might have actually happened but that was probably not the only factor yeah people weren't the best about pregnancies back then that's true they still smoked and stuff yeah yeah and then uh I feel like that actually caused a trend for future movies because you'll still occasionally like if you think about uh like the paranormal activity initial marketing campaign yeah was absolutely. all like showing reactions of people in theaters and like how scared they were and like you'll still have movies that say that I, not really anymore but I feel like ten to twenty years ago you'd still have people saying similar things yeah and I think it's interesting um I've seen this compared to like I've read a couple chapters of books and stuff um because this is the same year that uh texas chainsaw massacre came out and obviously oh, they were received very differently critically <laughs> um, well there are also reasons. very different movies <laughs> yeah but i think it's interesting that like the one that is considered like the art piece has people having miscarriages in the theaters as part of their like marketing campaign and like has a like all the fucked up scenes that happen in that and i would say has more blood in it oh definitely there's almost no blood in texas, texas chainsaw, chainsaw massacre yeah. Um, to be fair, there isn't that much blood in this movie either. The only real scenes that involve like real blood were the MRI scene and the like 
crucifix scene? Yeah, there was no crucifix scene in the. Uh, <laughs> um, no, there Chainsaw wasn't. Mask I feel like this was a lot that. worse uh, yeah. in a lot of ways. But like, there was a message behind it, and it wasn't just like yeah. teenagers. Um, and dying. the church was much more on board with this because, like, the message of it, you know, is definitely a lot more pro-church. Yeah. <laughs> no, 100%. That's one of the things that, like, I missed from this movie when I was watching it is, like, the idea that, like, Father Karras is supposed to, like, start believing in, like, God again at the very end when he's, like, dying and has the last rites read to him. He's, like, he restores his faith, which is something that apparently is very obvious in the book because I think you hear it from his perspective, though I'm not 100% sure because I haven't read it. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I, kinda, I think the book was probably like a reason why a lot of people actually ended up going to see this movie and probably why it was so popular as a movie because the book was really popular. And the New York Times article that I read included like a lot of interviews with people who were like, yeah, I can't wait to see how they show this thing happening from the book and this thing happening from the book. So I think that that was part of why it had such a crazy out, like for sure, insane outturn or turnout of people. Um, and I know the book was popular, but I tried Googling, like, I was trying to figure out how popular this was, and all I saw was that at some point it was, like, the number eight most popular book in Spain, and that's, like, what I found about the popular. I know it was popular. I don't know how popular. Yeah, I heard that it was, like, because it was a New York Times bestseller. I heard it was kind of a nothing book, and then he ended up being a guest. Uh, William Blatty ended up being a guest, like, at the last minute on, like, a late night show, I think. Oh, interesting. And then it got a bunch of attention, and then, you know, from there. So it kind of was a I guess a stroke of sort of good luck that launched uh, one of the most iconic horror movies of all time. That makes sense. And which then was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Yeah. And this is the first time a horror movie had ever really gotten there. I mean, again, like yeah. not everyone considered this to be a horror movie, but I think it did pave the way for other horror movies to be taken seriously for the first time. Because like, as you mentioned, there are no names in this. And part of that's that like big names didn't think horror movies were worth investing their time in. And this showed them that it actually was. And so right. you have like names in movies like the Omen. Yeah. And honestly the studios as well, like this was an insane amount of money, $12 million in 1973. That's a lot of money. And but like, then 40, $400 million is even more money. <laughs> exactly. Like it can be worth it. And like, yeah, okay, so it didn't win most of those Academy Awards, obviously. I actually did think it was interesting that it won for Best Adapted Screenplay, which is kind of similar to how Get Out won for Best Original Screenplay, even though it didn't win any. Like, it didn't They're just like, this was really, really, really good. We just we don't want to give you awards. Yeah. Um, but it did. I mean, it totally paved the way for other horror movies to be seen as like a respectful genre and like a, a genre that was worthy of time. And I mean, you see other bigger budget, like not the same level, but like The Omen was a $2.8 million budget. Amityville Horror was a $4.7 million budget. Like that's money that was not being put into horror movies before this time. Oh, totally. And like you said earlier, the visuals in this movie define what people think, not only what people think like exorcist movies look like and like what we sort no, of they think that. like this real is... exorcisms look like this. Yeah, exactly. Like, and there weren't really exorcism movies before this, which is why that was possible. Like this made like Rosemary's Baby was around. Right. But that that's just the possession. It doesn't actually involve any of the exorcism side of things itself. And then later we see like like you talked about the exorcism of Emily Rose, which is like not necessarily a straight horror movie and more of a legal drama, but still um the taking of deborah logan the right the whole conjuring oh my franchise. god i started watching the right and i on a plane 
and I never got to finish after like the first 30 minutes and I've been wanting to watch it so badly uh, because the first 30 minutes like made it look like it could be a decent movie and like you know Anthony Hopkins is great yeah, but I, I just know that as the movie that I watched 20 to 30 minutes of on a plane once then never got to finish because <laughs> no one would agree to watch it with me you gotta watch it by yourself girl quarantine I, I don't have a lot of time during quarantine make Paul watch it <laughs> Honestly, I could be like, Paul, we're watching this, and he would say yes. He probably I honestly just it. forgot that this movie existed, because this was probably like five years ago that Well, that girl, happened. you better rewatch the beginning, because you're not going to remember all the details. True. Um, yeah, and like you mentioned earlier, uh, the child Damien in The Omen is named after Damien Karras in The Exorcist. And basically, it this is. was just... There's nothing like it, you know? This was a, a really incredible moment in the history of horror. And uh, whether or not it was intended to be a horror movie, I think it has definitely become a part of the horror family for better or for worse. Oh, so. 100%. And especially there are so many sequels that also like leaned into the horror aspect more. And I think you're probably right that at the time horror wasn't seen as like an okay thing to make. And so right. it was just... But I mean, if you're used to like seeing, you know, bad tacky horror and you're making something that's like about a priest rediscovering his faith in god you're not necessarily going to want to group it in there but and i guess 100 sort of, it is sort of a circle because without the exorcist people would still probably be more ashamed to say yes this is a horror movie that i'm making yes i love horror that kind of thing like i think it opened the doors for that a little bit more so you know maybe we can cut them a little bit of slack Oh, totally. Reluctantly on my part. <laughs> uh, um, no, I'm happy they made this. I watched it. It, it isn't one of my favorite like movies to watch in the sense like I don't get a lot of like enjoyment out of watching yeah, it. Yeah, I feel the same way. But I think that it, I'm really, I'm really happy it was made. I'm happy that yeah. it did what it did for horror because we probably wouldn't have this podcast if a movie had not paved the way. And I'm not exactly. saying that like if this movie was not made, another movie probably would have paved the way in its path, but. But this is the it, one that did it. So, yep, so thank you. It still you. gets the credit. <laughs> thank you, Exorcist. Thank you, Friedrich. Thank you, Blatty. Friedkin. Friedkin. Did I say Friedrich? You did. God damn it. It's been a long day slash week slash month. It's been a long year. of three. It's been a long three weeks of God. being inside of my apartment and really nowhere else. Dude, I'm I'm going nuts. I don't. This is the longest conversation I've had in three weeks. I know. It's crazy. It's so weird. Other than, all like, right. to my cats. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, what are we going to be talking about next? What's our next uh, our next movie? So I was thinking, we yes. are currently locked in our apartments because of a horrible disease. And True. we don't really know what this means. There's, like, a sense of isolation, a sense of scaredness. And I was wondering, is there a movie that captures all of that? Probably. And I've never seen it, so I'm not sure if it does. But I've read that the movie Wreck is pretty good about all that we haven't done a foreign movie in a little while so why not watch a movie about being locked in your apartment with a disease sounds great and so, definitely like it will take my mind off of things yeah so i haven't actually seen this movie i think the original is spanish i know there's a u.s version but we're gonna do the og because why not exactly we haven't done a foreign film in a little while so this will be nice so kind of a return to return to that return to form though also it might feel a little close to home it might. 
Um, but we will be watching that and we'll be talking about it. Um, we're trying to stay on a semi-normal schedule. I know that this is about a week late coming out and we're sorry for that. Um, yeah, we had a lot of, (laughs) we had a lot of technical issues trying to get this podcast made, uh, not in the same place recording remotely at all. So we really appreciate your patience. We did. So hopefully now we can record whenever and it won't be a big deal. And we're, we're, we are really going to try to get these back out on time. And, uh, we love you guys and we really appreciate you sticking with us, um, and being patient. Don't uh, play with a Ouija board if uh, someone named Captain Howdy starts talking to you. If it's like Captain Hello or like Captain like Captain What's Up, yeah, then that's fine. Go for that. Just not Captain Howdy because that's a bad guy. Yeah. Honestly, I don't trust people who say Howdy. No, I don't either. All right. Um, well, I would say drive safe, but uh, you probably aren't going anywhere. So stay safe. Stay in your apartment or your home um, as much as you can. Just be good to everybody else. And uh, yeah, this is a serious time and please take it seriously. Yeah. Stay safe, everyone. Don't go outside. Or as I learned how to say in Chinese, Dai zai jia li. What does that Which mean? Which means stay home. Do you know that. Everyone's like hashtagging stay home. Apparently that's the hashtag in China is Daisai Jiali. Nice. All right. Um, well, we will talk to you guys next time. Be safe. We love you and good night. Bye. Bye.